So, money. Yeah. Good topic, good times. Right? I mean, we even see it right now, right? You turn on the news, and the, the, the lead story is going to be fiscal, right? It's going to be about governments and shutdowns and budgets and debt and uh, where money's going and where money's not going and how nobody has the money to do anything. Money just, it just invades all of the space, right? It just inevitably does. And because it does so in our world, and Christianity is a faith in this world, the church is an entity in this world, the reality is that we as Christians and as the church, we have to interact with money. Now we're supposed to leverage that for certain things, we're to use it for God's glory, we're to invest it into eternal purposes, but because we are human, because we are frail, sometimes we get a little diverted. Sometimes we miss the big picture, and instead of Jesus being first, money becomes first. And because money becomes first, then sometimes those who claim Jesus are really claiming Jesus only for money and not for Jesus' sake. See, those, this is one of those challenges that, that we find. And you find it throughout the New Testament. And even the book of 1 Timothy that we are studying in this series called Warrior, uh, man, Timothy's environment is not immune to the problem. And so as Paul is wrapping up this first letter to Timothy, he's going to dive right into this topic. And he's going to give a lot of insight, a lot of wisdom, and some warning on how money can change everything. So, if you have a Bible, please open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be starting in about verse 3. Now, as we think about the topic, we think about some of the warnings that we see throughout the Bible. We see David warning us that money, if it is your uh, idol and your God, it's going to dissatisfy. Solomon says it's chasing the wind and it's vanity if that's where you want your fulfillment. Jesus said money is a rival to God. Paul says it's a snare. And so he's going to warn young Timothy about some of the dangers that have arrived in the church that Timothy pastors. And as he's going to teach to this into Timothy's, Timothy's life, he's going to tell him that, Timothy, you have to teach and urge what I'm about to tell you. That's the very end of verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. He's going to say, teach and urge. And there is a reason. And the reason is because money is an urge to us. I, just being candid. It's always going to be this, this thing we struggle with at times because it's going to have a pull. And Timothy's going to have to teach on this whole broad topic. And he has no doubt that some people in the church are going to be like, oh, the money talk. I don't know what that feels like. I don't feel that way at all. Um, right? And there's going to be some, as soon as you say money and church, the defenses go up. Because like, oh, are they asking for my money? Are they going to condemn me for my money? Are they going to say that I'm mishandling my money? What are they going to say about money? Well, again, my heart is not to say anything other than what the Bible says. And the Bible is going to say a whole lot of good stuff today about that topic. Again, things that we are warned about. Things that we should learn to do. Now, before Paul gets there, he's going to build kind of on this idea because there's a problem in Timothy's church there in Ephesus, 
right? The church was planted under Paul. He was there for three years. Uh, the, the way the church was planted, it was in the context of a riot, right? All these people started coming to Christ. It totally challenges the fiscal infrastructure of the city. Those who were selling idols suddenly weren't making the kind of money. So finances has always been a part of the local church dynamic there in Ephesus. And with that then, at times, false teachers who teach falsely because they're seeking some kind of gain. And so Paul's going to open up by warning about the false teachers, but then from that, how it bleeds into money. So he begins to tell Timothy, you know what, here's some big ideas about the false teachers and how it's going to tap into the economic issues that you face. And so Timothy, you have to teach, you have to urge these things. Verse 3, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine... And does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He understands nothing. It's great. The J.B. Phillips version of this says he's a conceited idiot. Right? And that's what I love about Paul. Paul or Jesus or John or Jude. You know what they would do with false teachers? They'd actually call them names. Like in the PC climate, I can't do that. I come up here on a Sunday morning, I call somebody a name, next thing I know I get an email calling me names for calling somebody a name. You know, and like, but you're so mean, you can't say that on a Sunday morning. I'm like, oh, I wish I would have been in the same era as Paul. I could call people names. All right, so he he calls them names. They're conceited idiots, these false teachers. Now, some things that stand out to me about this, and this is what I love about this particular passage. Um, First is this. Here's what Paul believes. Paul believes when it comes to false teachers that they're false. And there is a truth that is a big T, absolute, non-negotiable truth. Right? And and man, truth and error, truth and lie. We do, we struggle with this idea, even as Christians, because we don't want to come across as judgmental or condescending or know-it-alls. And so we struggle to say with conviction, there is truth and then there is error. And by error, we mean a lie. See, Paul was very comfortable with the fact that there was truth. Now, there's some things within Christianity that are speculation. Whether one's an Arminian or one's a Calvinist or whether one's pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib or all-millennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial, whatever you want to do. That stuff is secondary. Whether you're pro-tongues or not pro-tongues, that's all secondary, right? We can debate that stuff. But there is a core truth that God came in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a truth. That Jesus, everything he said matters and sticks. It's authoritative and it counts. That's true. That Jesus died on the cross for sin. It's true. That Jesus rose from the grave. It's true. That it is the only way to God. It is true. That is capital T, truth. Sometimes we get nervous about that. Well, it's my way. It's not the only way. No, it's the only way. It's the way. And so Paul says, man, this is how you're going to know the difference from a true teacher and a false teacher. The very first thing he says is false teachers deviate from the faith. They deviate from orthodoxy. right? Not on those gray issues we can debate, but on the matter of fact, red letters, black letters in the Bible. Nobody's speculating. It's just I don't like it, so I'm changing it stuff. No, it's that stuff that's true. And he says, False teachers get away from that. False teachers like to look at Jesus and redefine him or mischaracterize him 
Or the best one is they pit Jesus against the other Bible characters. All right? They'll be like, oh, well, Paul said that. But see, Jesus didn't say that, so it doesn't count. I'm like, uh, Paul said it because Jesus inspired him to say it. Uh, we shouldn't pit Jesus against the rest of the Bible. It's not like Jesus is like, ah, oh, yeah, those guys are nuts, man. Just trust the red letters, that's all. Right? That's not it. Sometimes what people want to do is take some of Jesus' words, but not all of Jesus' words. I mean, this is sort of the problem here, that they're mischaracterizing Christ. So, uh, you take the words that you really like, the warm, the flat, fuzzy, the slippers and lollipop statements of Jesus, right? And you go like, that's our Jesus. Wow! <laughs> In the name of Jesus, be healed, demon be gone. All right, so... Um, I don't even know what that was, but that sounded like a demon left that child. All right, so not that your child's demon possessed. If that was, I'm sorry, that was too far. All right, so um, I wish I could have recorded that. I, I could have, man, that was awesome. So, right? So truth and error. All right, so um, there's truth, right? And, and, and so we want to take Jesus at Jesus' own word. Right? Because again, especially, man, in, in recent years, there was this quest where everybody wants to claim Jesus. Like everybody does. Right? Agnostics like him. Atheists just like him for his morality. Different faiths like him for his basic life ethic. And so I'm going to take these parts of Jesus. But, but Jesus was this dude that was both uh, the guy that said, hey, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Right? And everybody goes, yeah, I like that Jesus. But he was the same Jesus that said, hey, get behind me, Satan. Right? He's the same Jesus that said, For God so loved the world that he gave me his only begotten Son. And at the same time, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I do divide. Right? All of Jesus counts. Not just part of Jesus, not just the parts of Jesus I like. All of Jesus counts. The false teachers don't want to teach all of Jesus. They want to teach some of Jesus. Or they want to claim the name of Jesus, but they don't communicate and live the ethic and heart and life change that Jesus produces through the gospel. Which is why Paul says not only do they teach Jesus wrong, but they teach Jesus wrong in such a way that the fruit is not a godly life. See, because the reality about this big T truth, if the true teacher teaches the truth of Jesus, is that it produces change. It's not just interesting or insightful or inspirational, it's transformational. Right? When we teach the truth of Jesus, what it should cause in us, in one sense, is to go, man, I want to be more of what he wants me to be. And another part of that says, and I want to discard all the junk that I still hold on to. Because Jesus divides, Jesus cuts, Jesus opens us up. Jesus expects a standard of us that we in and of ourselves cannot produce unless we're surrendered to him and the Holy Spirit's doing the work. Let me start thinking about it. Hey, want to be the greatest? Be the least. Want to be first? Be last. You want to really be loving? Love your enemy. Do good to them. Pray for them. Uh, Turn the other cheek. Uh, Don't even have a lustful thought in your mind. If anybody has any offense against you, you go to them and make it right. I mean, all these things that Jesus says are so hard for us as human beings to do, and we can't do them unless there's real transformation. The false teacher doesn't preach transformation. The false teacher preaches um, self-centeredness or self-sufficiency or self-ishness, 
But Jesus is all about man, selfless. And only when there's transformation can that happen. So Paul contends, man, Timothy, make sure you understand false teachers are working against you. They do it for a following. They do it for fame. They do it for a book deal or recognition. They do it for power or control or whatever. They have all sorts of motives in that. But they don't preach as Jesus as he really is with a godliness that is produced. That's the first trait of a false teacher. They don't treat, teach true orthodoxy. The second is because of this, they split churches and they split up Christians. He says these types of people, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth. Right? When you have a church... And you have a group of Christians that uphold the words of Jesus, take those words seriously, uphold all the words of the Bible, take those words seriously. What it produces is transformation, and true transformation unifies. True transformation bonds us together. And when you have the truth proclaimed and lived, you know what you find among Christians is unity and peace. You want to know when you have a false teacher? He breeds division. A false teacher wants the divide. A false teacher loves speculation. A false teacher loves to be the devil's advocate and try to fracture unity and peace. A false teacher has no problem throttling a church for their own end and gain. That's what they do. See, one of the things I love about redemption, when I meet with different pastor friends of mine, and we're talking about churches, um, it, and and uh, this, isn't, this is a testimony to our people, our elders, just a conviction of the Bible. This doesn't happen with just a s- set of small pocket of leaders. But, but man, we are a peaceful church. We are a remarkably peaceful church. Over the years, we've been through all kinds of crazy and chaos and challenge and problem and pressure. And we've stayed peaceful. We've stayed connected we've stayed in love with one another even when we sometimes disagree we don't get real fiery and passionate about that that is the mark of a healthy church more pastors that i talk to than than not talk about how there's friction there's division there's challenge in the churches they're in and 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 part of the proof to me that the holy spirit is at work at redemption and part of the proof to me that you all are a people that love what jesus says and you take it seriously is your peace is your grace, is your forgiveness, is your long-suffering. All of these are the traits of what Jesus came to do and accomplish, right? The true teachers, man, they value it. The false teachers, they don't care if they divide. They don't care if they fracture. They don't care if they start fights. They don't care if they hurt people's feelings without cause. They don't care about that. They care about their power, their position, their fame, their whatever, but they don't care about peace, So Paul says, watch out for those guys. Don't give them any room. Any room. In fact, I remember there's this one church where it was really obvious that the kind of the spirit and nature of the the leadership in the church where, uh, again, even their focus was, their big idea was, man, we're all about love. We're all about love. But there wasn't real love. There was this idea of love. There wasn't the outplay of love. And so there was perpetual friction. Because they weren't really owning what it means to love their enemy or to love one another in a genuine way. It was just like, here's the idea. We don't do this idea. And so every time they would have meetings, there was infighting and bickering and debating. And it was all pointless, but it was also the fruit of an unhealthy leadership. 
So Paul says, man, you got to watch out for that stuff, right? They're going to go against orthodoxy, and they're going to have no problem bringing division. Bringing division because instead of advancing the gospel and expanding the kingdom, it's expanding a base where hopefully from that they receive gain. And that's where Paul begins to move into this financial issue because he says, man, there's different teachers that do different things, but when they teach false doctrine, they wander from the truth, they stir up strife, but they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. That's the third trait of the false teacher. Not only does he love to break away from orthodoxy, not only does he love to bring division within the church and among Christians, but in this he believes that his faith, his religion, Christianity, by adhering to that at some level is going to bring him gain. He loves the money. Money changes everything. Money changes everything. Soon it's like, you know what, if Jesus is a means to my financial gain, if living this life is a means to my opulence, I'm all in. And so they go all in. Now, you've probably seen this in different forms. Um, I I just came across this, I don't know, about a month ago. It just aired. I'm going to show you the trailer and see if you can tag what I'm talking about. So, uh, BJ, which by the way, it is BJ's birthday today. Congratulations, BJ. Happy birthday! All right, so um, so I'm going to have him play this video right now, and, and let's see if you can understand maybe a little bit of what I'm talking about. My name is Bishop Ron Gibson. I'm Bishop Clarence E. McClendon. My name is Dietrich Haddon. I'm Wayne Cheney. My name is Jay Hazlip. My name is Noel Jones. The Bible says that I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. I believe that. P. Diddy, Jay-Z, they're not the only ones who should be driving Ferraris and living in large houses. The Bible says that those who sow among us should reap from us. That's implying that the preacher is to be taken care of. I like being successful. Security is a necessary part of what we do. Being a pastor is very dangerous because you have to be perfect at all times. People put you up on a pedestal that you can't live on. Pastors are people just like everybody else. It's all about truth for me from this point on. The truth about my baby out of wedlock, the truth about my divorce, it happened. There's nothing I can do about that. I'm a pastor, but at the end of the day, I'm a man. Does it ever get to a place where it's really not about love, but it's about winning? Winning what? Winning a a man or relationship? No, winning me. Winning me. You're not a prize. I am a prize. (laughs) That's right. Maybe I don't love you as much as you love me. Maybe you don't. And maybe I don't love you as much as you think I love you. I'm trying my best to balance it all. And just when you think you have it managed, just can't do this, man. If we plan on having more children, I want to be married. We have more than a relationship like I'm your part of your, your congregation. I'm not. Don't pastor me. That is awesomeness. All right, so 
Like, I, I'm watching this going, imagine like that in Duval, right? I'm, I'm like, you've seen my drawn deer, you've seen my Kubota. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah, I got a lot of tractor, you know what I mean? Like, no, man, but I, I, and like, honestly, I'm like, when I thought that we couldn't go any further with reality television, we're following health, wealth, and prosperity pastors in L.A., um, and, and yet, this is exactly the kind of problem, right, that, that Paul is addressing and dealing with right there. It's where people are basically using Jesus to be on the take. Now, what's true, according to the quote, I don't know the story. I just know you're Bentley, you know. So, um, I just know your tone. I just know kind of this thing that feels like Jesus is getting used more than proclaimed, Right? Where Jesus is a means of gain because, again, I'm looking for the finances more than the expansion of the kingdom, more than the glory. And this happens in all sorts of venues. It's not just the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. It's any religious group at any time that makes money more important than kingdom or gospel. Money's a tool. It's not an idol. shouldn't be. Sometimes it becomes that. And so when somebody says, you know what, Jesus wants you to be healthy, Jesus wants you to be wealthy, um, you know what, I, I don't think Jesus is opposed to health at all. He heals. And Jesus isn't opposed to wealth if you're wealthy. Uh, but the idea that if you're godly, you will get that, or the evidence of your godliness is that you have that, and if you don't have that, you're not godly. You ready? There's a word for that. It's called crap. <laughs> that is crap. And I know somebody's going to email me and say, it is not nice you said crap on Sunday. And what I'm going to say is, oh, if you knew what I wanted to say, um, you will thank me for saying crap. All right, so that's what that is. It's total crap, right? See, in our culture, it plays kind of okay, right? As far as, uh, you know, people are, are used to affluence in our culture. But these guys, right, not necessarily these ones in the video, but health, wealth, and prosperity guys, these guys will go to places like Africa where a guy is trying to make sure his wife doesn't die, and he's a pig farmer, and they'll say, well, if you just have more faith and you're more godly, God would heal your wife and multiply your pigs. That's crap. That's cruel crap. It's why I have very little patience for this particular genre, right? Because, again, in the end of the day, it, it is corrupting, it's negative, it deeply impacts people's lives. Uh, you think about some of the pastors and televangelists who do this. It's people who are trying to decide between electric bill and phone, and then they hear, well, if you just sow a seed of faith, um, you know what? God's going to give you tenfold. And so they pay neither and they send a check to the televangelist waiting for God to bless them for their godliness. Uh, forgetting like Jesus was a, was a pretty impoverished dude and pretty godly. Paul, same thing. So many godly people, their godliness is not manifest in their health or their wealth. Because that's not where true godliness lies. That's not where true contentment lies. Paul tells Timothy, he says, godliness with contentment. Now that is great game. Right? That is great game. 
right? If you have a highlighter or a pencil, that is the verse you should underline. That is the verse you should highlight. That is the verse you should stick on a mirror or on the, the steering wheel of your car, right? Just right there. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I say that because that word contentment, you ready? That is a hard-won virtue. That is a hard-fought-for virtue. You think of where we live. We live in the land of Ur. Stronger, faster, newer, better, cleaner, stronger, beefier, right? I mean, we live in the land of Ur. Even if you say, well, I want thriftier, that's usually spendier, right? I want good gas mileage, so I'll get a Prius, right? So, Ur, we live in the land of Ur, hands down. As Americans, right? Uh, We're just, you know, land of the free and home of the overstrapped, right? That's that's us. In fact, yesterday Ellen called, um, we had a credit card we just don't use, and so we're like, we should just close this, this is stupid. So she calls to close it, and she's like in this debate for like five minutes with a gal on the other line, you know? And, and she's like, well, why don't you want it? We're like, we don't use it, we don't need it, we don't use it for anything, it's just sitting there, so we're going to close it. Well, most Americans have ten credit cards. That's literally what the late. that was her pitch. Well, most Americans have ten credit cards. We're like... Yeah, look where that's getting us. All right, so, um, yeah, we'll just cancel. Thank you. Goodbye. All right? So, right? It's our problem. Contentment. You know how contentment is rough? Guess what's coming? Christmas. Right? And what's going to happen, right? Your sweet little kids are going to come to you with lists. Lists upon lists upon lists. I want this and I want that. Or no, mom, I want this. No, I want this. God, I I gotta have this. Take them down the toy aisle. Good luck getting out. You know, like, I want it all. Right? So it's just, it's ingrained. It's in the DNA. It just kind of sits in our soul. We want catalogs, right? Compete for our affections, commercials. Letting us know how sad we are until we have their product. And then we'll be happy, right? Like, All of that is a part of this idea of we struggle with contentment, right? We do. Even my kids, I love my kids, they'll come to me every couple of days and say, Dad, you know what I want? I'm like, no, because it's always changing, you know? Like, like, an hour ago it was one thing, and now it's something else, and I'm the same way, right? I'm exactly the same way. Or I have first world problems, Right? So, so I have this situation in my life. I, I, I live up Mountain View Road, um, and, and so the only way I can access the interwebbies is through satellite. The gods hate me. All right, so um, it's like, it's slow, it bogs down, you eat up all your bandwidth quick. And so here I am with my portable laptop glowing trying to find information on Google, like in the day we had to go to libraries. Now... I'm here complaining, it's not fast enough, it's not, I want to find out about the honey badger, and this is slow, you know, like, a lack of contentment, it's the struggle, right, it's the struggle, the word contentment literally means sufficient apart from circumstance, that's what that word meant in the original Greek language, sufficient apart from circumstance, um, That's hard. 
What's interesting here, though, is that there's a little bit of a solution embedded into the situation. Because it doesn't just say, uh, through your own self-sufficiency and your self-strength, be content. It actually says, godliness with contentment is great gain. The key is not to say, I'm going to be content, I'm going to be content, I'm going to be content. Yes, I know the internet's slow, but I'm going to be content. It's not that. It's not, uh, Christmas is coming, but I'm not going to have a big list. I'm only going to have a list of 10, maybe 12, maybe 15, but I'm going to be content. You know, like, like... It's not, it's not convincing yourself into contentedness. It's pursuit of godliness. The only way we will find a place of genuine content is the pursuit of God. I mean, like a legitimate pursuit, right? Where we say, I really want God to be all satisfying. I want God to be all sufficient. I want God to fill up all of my needs. I don't want to be left wanting for I've received the only need I really have, which is Jesus. Now, I know for some of us, like, ah, oh, that's cute. That, that preach is good. Put that on a coffee mug, right? I get it. Like, it doesn't sound very realistic. But it, but it is. Because I know in my own life, when I'm in that zone, right, where I, I'm really focused on a daily basis, multiple times a day, just praying, Jesus, let, I just want you to be all sufficient. I want you to be the one that fills me up. I want you to be the one that brings contentedness because it's so easy for me. I'm a pessimist by nature. Right? If somebody says, well, come on, the glass is half full, I'm like, of dirt. Um, like, you know, that's more me, right? So um, I don't do, well, I'm more of a pessimist uh, called a realist for all of you optimists. Uh, and and uh, I got issues, all right? Um, right? And, and, and then um, it's just easy for me to be dissatisfied with where things are at because my gifting's more vision, which means it's always out there. It's never here. Right? So I can get frustrated by all of that too. So uh, f- for me, uh, I need to be in a good place with God or I get swamped by my pessimism and my lack of seeing the, the, the future now. Right? So when I'm in that place, man, and, and God is sufficient and he is my delight and he is my pleasure and I feel knit to him, I wake up in the morning, I'll have just some black coffee and I'll stand out on my porch, even in the rain. I'll be like, oh, life's good. I mean, really, I will. I'm just like, oh, I love the simple things. I, I love, I just, I just love seeing my kids just get up out of bed, hair everywhere. I'm like, oh, they're beautiful. They're great. You know, my beautiful wife comes downstairs, you know, oh, life is so good. Church, oh, I love church. I mean, it's just like that, right? But when I'm not in that good place, and I start to wander and drift, and it becomes about want, and it's not about the pursuit of godliness, it's the pursuit of task or busyness or other Man, it's all different. It's cold. You know what I mean? Oh, my kids probably want me to help them on their homework before they go. You know, just whatever. I I, I just get, oh, church isn't what it's supposed to be. I'm not what I'm supposed to be. Life's not what it's supposed to be. And it's raining, right? So it's like, I used to live in Arizona, but that was hot. All right? So, So it wouldn't even matter, right? That's because there isn't the pursuit of godliness to foster contentment. All right, that, that's, that's where the real gain is right there, right? That's the gain, right? To be at that place where we say, you know what? It just, it's, like, it's the song, give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Like if, if we can really get to a point where that song is, is, is truly the truth of our heart, we're free in this world. We're liberated, right? We're liberated. But if not, we're always wanting and we'll struggle with the contentment. And so Paul tries to give us some perspective, verse 7. He says, For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out 
of this world. We know this. When you were born, you were born without pants. Right? So you had no pockets, so you couldn't carry stuff, right? It's just that simple. You were pantsless. That means nothing, nothing. And one day, every one of us will punctuate our last breath, and they're going to put us in a pine box, in a bad suit, and men, they put makeup on us. That is the final insult right there, all right? Like, oh, and by the way, here's some lipstick, Grandpa. I mean, like, that is, really, that's what you get, all right? But you know what? It all stays in the box. It all stays in the box. So when everybody at the end of the day is there at the memorial, like, uh, you know, the, the, the party after the memorial, and they're all talking, inevitably what comes up is, so uh, when are we looking at the will, <laughs> right? And then, and then somebody asks, well, well, how much did they leave? And the answer is, everything. They left every bit of it. Because it doesn't go with, and Paul knows that. So he says, hey man, we hit the world naked, we go out with nothing. Nothing. Our stuff is baggage and we're nomads. Which isn't bad. Baggage isn't bad. Baggage can be good, especially when you're a nomad. As long as you realize that you're a nomad and at the end of your journey, all of that is discarded. That it's a tool. It's an opportunity. But they're not really possessions. Because if you think they're possessions, uh, they may in fact possess you more than you possess them. Paul knows this, and so he reminds us of the big idea, right? This world is like a dream. So he says in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, hey, we'll be content. We'll be content. Now, notice he doesn't say uh, destitute. I mean, he's not saying, hey, like, be content when you're destitute. Uh, Food and clothing, I mean, these are your necessities, He says, with that, you can be content, be happy with that. The fact that you can go home and open your fridge and get a bite to eat, and you're not going to be rained on today. Man, you are blessed. You're blessed. And so you can enjoy the things that you have. In fact, that's part of the problem. Sometimes we don't focus on what we have, we focus on what we want, and because of that, we're never satisfied with what we have. So I know some of you today, you're going to go home. At 1 o'clock, you're going to turn on the game on that big 5,000-pound television that you have that is in high definition, where you're not sure if what Russell Wilson is wearing a 3 or an 8. I understand. It's a little blurry. But be happy. We'll be winning. All right? So enjoy what you have. Don't feel a compulsion for what you don't have because with that you might be being robbed of contentment. Paul knew the secret to this in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live in almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. What I realize is I can do everything through Christ who gives me the strength. It's not self-denial, self-mastery, or self-sufficiency. It is Christ-wanting, Christ-seeking, Christ-dwelling. It's proximity, right? When Christ is our deepest satisfaction, these other things, they're they're just bonus. To have or to not have, whatever. I have Christ who gives me what I need to see life right. To see it right. 
And so he encourages all who may be struggling financially, all who may be struggling to make ends meet even, to say, man, godliness with contentment, that's great gain. That's what you want. Be in that pocket of contentment. Now, he doesn't just merely talk to those that are in need, but he talks about those who are wealthy in verse 17. We're going to jump to verse 17. Now, now one of the things I want to specify here is that there is this temptation at times when people read the Bible to think that poor is godly and wealthy is materialistic. That is not true. That is not true. All right? You can be godly and wealthy. You can be ungodly and poor. You can be greedy and poor, and you can be generous and wealthy. So, so don't think that just because somebody has wealth, they're going to be less than the poor. The poor don't get this automatic shoe-in to reverence and holiness. These are decisions, but the poor and the wealthy have to kind of face the world a little bit differently based on their circumstances, right? Both making sure that Jesus is their joy, that God is their sufficiency, but there is a difference between the two. So verse 17, Paul says, as for the rich... In this present age. The earlier group was the Christian godly poor. How do you be a godly person who may have very little? This is what you do. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What about those who are godly and have money? Well, there's advice to them. And just so you all know, every one of you, according to this text, is in the rich camp. Right? Now, I know you might say, we're not rich. Here's my checkbook. Not rich. Right? I know you might think that. But if you have a car and a home, and more than one change of clothing, you're richer than most of the world. If you have two cars, you're, now you're hyper-rich, right? So um, all of us are in this camp at some level. There's different variations of rich, but we all have more than just our basic needs. And so this is for all of us. So here's what he says to the rich in this present age. He says, charge them to not be haughty, right? Charge them to not be haughty. In other words, he's saying, you know what, there's this, this reality when it comes to money. Uh, money can give the illusion of character. You ever notice that? Education can give the illusion of character. Success can give the illusion of character. If they've done well, they must be quality. That's not necessarily true, but it can give the illusion of that. And, and so uh, the other part that comes with sometimes having money is you go, you know what, um, I'm self-made, I've accomplished a lot, I'm a go-getter in my, my field or whatever else. And, and so, you know, I, I don't have to be as nice. I can just say it as it is. I, can, I operate outside and above the standard a little bit. This is, oh, man, if you're a believer who has money, you have a great example to set in being humble. Which can be hard sometimes for those who have. I remember there's this one guy I met um, that just, I'm like, I've got a verse for you, bro. You know, like right here. Right? Because this guy was always like, you know, man, I, I, I was first in my class and I'm a lawyer. And you know what I'm worth and how much money I have. And I'm like, I don't know any of that. I just know you're a dweeb. You know, like, because, like, honestly, it was just perpetual. I was always being reminded of how much they had and what they were worth and what they'd accomplished. And I'm like, there's no humility in this at all and this is a great verse be humble in this present age if you have be humble another thing that he says he says nor does the rich want to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches uncertainty i think we know uncertainty hello 2008 called want your money back um you know right like 
I, I remember even like 2007, everybody, oh, upward, onward, real estate's booming, economy's booming, money's going everywhere, and then, right, came apart. People, I remember talking to people that had their retirement all figured out, shot, shot. They planned right, they, they had every anticipation in the world of it all going well, they weren't irresponsible, they weren't negligent, it's just the reality that money is a fickle guide. More than that, when I hear about like uh, financial security, I'm like, jumbo shrimp, oxymorons all around, you know, like, like honestly, financial security, you've got to be kidding me. There is no such thing, no matter how hard you try to have financial security. You can't have it. Now, I know some people are like, gold, right? Yeah, until the guy with bullets comes and gets your gold. You know, so lead, all right? So brass, ah, yeah. Doesn't matter. Nothing is secure. And so Paul tells the rich, man, don't put your stock in your wealth. You might have a 401k this year and it's a 104k next year. You know, like... Things shift and change, man. They do. So he says, don't set your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Again, it goes back to the godly poor. How are they godly? They pursue godliness. That is gain. The rich, same thing. You set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here's what I love about this. Um, Two things he says. Put your hope on God, which we should. And then he says, and you can enjoy what you have. So, so here's what that means for us as followers of Christ who are off, better off than most of the world is. Um, you know what? Uh, don't, don't trust in your savings account. Don't trust in your portfolio. Don't trust in your occupation. Don't trust in any of that, your education, to, to, to sustain your wealth. You, you, you can't trust that. You don't know. Who knows? Don't put your hope there. But if you have it, you can enjoy it. You can enjoy it. You can take great trips You can have nice toys. You can have a great house. You can have a Christmas this year with hundreds of presents under the tree. There is nothing sinful about any of those things. People are going to try to say that too. Well, if you have a lot, then oh, now you're more material. That's not true. That's not true. It can be true, but it's not necessarily true. Because that's what he just said. You can enjoy it all, right? Paul's already pushed this about other things, right? About food and marriage. He says everything is to be received with thanksgiving by God who gives and says it's good. If you have a lot of wealth, good. Amen. Praise God. Provided that these things are true of you. Now, if the money is what makes you tick, your identity is in your riches, man, that's going to hurt. But if you have all this stuff, then you enjoy it. But you're also generous humble, putting your hope in God, you're in good shape. So Paul just says, hey man, if you have money, just be aware of these things. You can be godly with money. You can. You can have a lot of stuff. Be godly. Not the problem. Just make sure you're humble. You're trusting. But then also you're generous. Verse 18. It says, here's what the wealthy are to do. They are to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. I love that. Real simple. Known for what you do, not merely for what you have. Right? Resisting greed through generosity. And if you are wealthy, you have the chance to be generous. Be generous uh, with your time, your talent, and your treasure. All three. 
Because uh, you have more freedoms if you have more affluence. You really do. You might fill it up with different things, but you have more freedoms. And, and I say all three because sometimes uh, we'll say, hey, you know what? I give my treasure so I don't give much of my time or my talent. You know, sometimes what churches really need, too, is the time and the talent aspect, not merely the treasure aspect. Sometimes what organizations need is time and talent, not merely treasure. Your, your time and talent might actually make it possible for that ministry, that organization, that church, to have more treasure because you help them understand time and use your talent to help them be fashioned and shaped differently. Same thing just toward other individual Christians. You can help them in some way. Time, talent, and treasure. That is a way to be generous, and Paul encourages all three in that passage. And when you do that, what are you doing? Well, you're a wise investor. He says, thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, notice Paul does not tell the wealthy to divest themselves themselves of their wealth. He doesn't tell them that. What does he tell them? He says, invest it. He says, invest it. That, that's all we do when we're giving. When we give of our time, our talent, or our treasure, you're investing. You get it back. I mean, that's the crazy part. People are like, oh, there it goes. No, not there it goes. You're just sending it forward. It's like Western Union for Jesus, right? So you send it forward. To a world far greater than this world, far more advanced in this world, far more rich and deep than this world. And, and, and again, I, I shared this a couple of weeks ago. Um, the world to come is far more exhaustive than this world. We put all of this energy and time to save for a world that evaporates. When the world to come is the one where you actually will want to have the opportunity to do the most, quote, spending. Right? That's your real retirement. That's your real life. And I, I kept looking at this passage this week, and a really uncomfortable question for me came to mind. And I, and I thought, all right, um, how much energy do we put in this life to invest into retirement for this life? How much do we long for, count the days down until retirement? Right? Uh, one of the things people will save is um, it's better to be a saver than a spender. I'm not always certain. Because a saver can also be a hoarder, Ebenezer Scrooge, right? And, and, and had all the resource and did nothing redeeming with it. Just saved it, saved it, saved it. Do we even ask the question of uh, how much am I trying to save for retirement? If the answer is, oh, there's no limit, why? I want it to be as big as I can make it. Why? I'm not saying that's wrong, but do we ask the question, why? I mean, at what point is our saving become, becoming our hoarding? And we're building bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns to no avail. No eternal redeeming value. Again, I'm not saying that saving's wrong. I'm not saying saving to the absolute limits is wrong. But do we ask the question of ourselves? I don't ask that question to me. The question kind of popped in my head out of nowhere. I'm like, ah, Jesus, can you put that question away? I don't want to, I don't want to ponder that question. I don't like that question. Right? Uh, we'll say in this world, a penny saved is a penny earned. Jesus would say, a penny given is really a penny earned. Right? A penny that is given to the need of another, that's earning. Yeah, sure, for this world. But it goes away. 
the world to come. It matters. So he says, tell the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is eternal life. Jump up to verse 9, but those who desire to be rich, this is going to be maybe those who don't have money but really want to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Perhaps the only group that might struggle with greed more than the rich are the poor, right? Paul knows this, and so he gives them advice, right? You want to be rich, you're looking for trouble. Because the more you want to be rich, the more you want to be rich. It's like saying, all right, I'm really thirsty, so I'm going to drink seawater, right? The more you drink, the more you dehydrate. You can just kill yourself dehydration-wise drinking seawater. It's the same as wanting to be rich. I want to be rich as though you'll ever achieve it. If that's your want, you'll never achieve it. And what happens? You fall into all sorts of problems. All sorts of problems, right? Fall into temptation and a snare. Foolish and harmful desires. Plunge into ruin and destruction. I mean, these warnings are really strong. No wonder Jesus in his wisdom always encouraged us to do the opposite. Want to be first, be last, greatest, least. I mean, like he knew, like if you want to be rich, you're going to be poor. You want to be affluent, you're going to be starved all the time. You're just going to guzzle the seawater and find yourself thoroughly dehydrated. Then he gives kind of this overarching reality. He says in verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now again, everybody says it. Money is not the evil. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying money is inherently evil. Money's a little bit like a drug. Money is a drug and then it can be used for good, for healing and help and wholeness. Or it can become an addiction where it becomes harmful, enslaving and bad. Right? Money can go any number of directions. But somebody that says, oh, I want it. I need it. I'll be filled by it. I'll have security through it. It is the all-encompassing pursuit of my culture. The person who does that, man, it's going to be a root of all kinds of evil. Look around. I mean, just look around. You see um, all the evil that came with the economic collapse where uh, nice little old ladies lost their money because of some greedy guy and people were sort of wooed into things that they should have never been involved with in the first place, all kinds of evil. You look at things like the pornography industry. Trust me, if there wasn't money to be made, I don't know of a lot of women that say, you know what, that just sounds like a good time. It's because of money. Sex trafficking industry, there are more slaves in the world today than in any other time in all global history. And many of them are sexual. Because there's a big industry. Drugs, big industry, all kinds of evil can come out of that. And not just those big things, other things, things that are closer to home. Things like one of the number one reasons that people get a divorce is what? Money. You're strapped out, debt's high, lots of frustration, different vision on money, blows up. When somebody passes in the family and the will does get rolled out, what happens? People start to fight and bicker. Well, I thought I was going to get that. Well, why did they get more than me? And families will divide over money. They all go into it the same way. No matter what it says, we're all going to be good, right? Yeah, we're going to be good. Yeah, oh, oh, you got that. Oh, bless you. Oh, you got that too. Bless you. Hmm. Oh, here. Screw you. All right, I mean, like, like, <laughs> no, that's exactly what happens. You probably had that happen in your family, right? That's what happens. 
right? Pretty soon you feel like you need more money, so he's working, she's working, they're both working a lot, they come home, they're stressed out, they got nothing for each other because they're giving it to somebody else just for cash. I mean, all these things are the things that are the all kinds of evil, right? If you have a lot of money, you know, one of the things, I, I talk to people that are pretty well off or affluent, you know, one of the questions they're always curious about, are these my friends or are they using me because I got cool stuff? You know, I've got a cabin, I've got a plane, I've got a, you know, a boat, I've got whatever, and are, are they really my friends or not? You see people that win the lottery that had like no friends and overnight they have lots of friends, Right? And they make a lot of poor decisions because they came into their money all at once as opposed to kind of gradually learning how to manage and be responsible with it. And so all kinds of evil comes out of that. That's the problem. Paul says in verse 10, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced himself with many sorrows. Jesus talks about this parable of the seed and the sower. He says there's this third seed that falls among the thorny ground. It's actually almost the same word that's used here with pierce themselves, thorns. And the ones that fall among the thorny soil, they spring up and they go, maybe we want to follow this Jesus, but then it says the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes them out. Right? Bad things happen. Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, but oh, how we try. Oh, how we try. Right? It's our struggle. So Paul wants us to be wise, wants us to be godly, and wants us to go into our relationship to money with our eyes wide open. And not just Paul, the parts of the Bible. Uh, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, one of the richest men that ever lived, said this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. If you're not happy now, you're not going to be happy when you get a raise this year. If you don't feel a sense of contentment now, why do you think that next job is going to do that? The best gauge on whether you're in a good place is right this second. That's the best gauge, not what's coming. What is? Jesus warns us in Luke chapter 12. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In an image-driven culture that we find ourselves in, that is a great reminder. It's not about our possessions. So Paul says all of this on money, and then he encourages his young friend Timothy really quick in verse 11. He says, but, but as for you, O man of God, right? Don't fall victim to greed. Don't fall victim to lust. Don't fall victim to false teaching. Don't fall victim to divisive talk. Don't fall victim to a covetous want. He says, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Run, Forrest, run. That's what he's saying, right? Run, Forrest, run. So you go defense, run away, then offense, pursue righteousness toward others, godliness toward God, faith in people, love toward people, steadfast in the midst of challenge and gentleness to those who can be difficult. All those things, he says, pursue and fight the good fight of faith. Your faith is a fight, and by that I mean it's a struggle. We read that verse and go, yeah, fight the good fight of faith! Scotland, right? Like that, right? Freedom! But this is saying it's hard. Faith is hard. To not love this world too much is hard. To be faithful is hard. To seek God is hard. It is a fight, a 
of faith. You have to fight for it. If you think it's just going to drop in your lap or it's just going to happen or it comes easy, man, no, that's not it. It is a fight of faith. So he says, fight, take hold of the eternal life with which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You have to believe that the life to come actually exists and matters. If that isn't true, we will not fight like we should. We have to lay hold. You have to grab it, grip it, hang on tight to it. Because it's so easy to get stripped in this life. So Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I tell you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. You've got to believe that he's coming. He who is blessed and the only sovereign king, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Right? Like, Paul's all over. He's telling this young guy, just like he tells us, you have to fight for this. You have to believe in this. You have to be motivated by this. His rule is universal. His reign is invincible. His power is immortal. His perfection is unapproachable. His person is inconceivable. His praise is unavoidable. And his precept is incorruptible. So he says at the end, I love this, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit. What is the deposit? Right? You're like, you mean that thing I take to the bank from work? No! The deposit. Guard the deposit, guard the gospel, guard the cross, guard the resurrection, guard the message of Jesus, guard the scriptures, guard the heart of the church, guard the message of the kingdom. You must guard the deposit. You live in a time and culture where the deposit is basically being shafted or peed on. And I know some of you are going to be like, that's not appropriate. Yeah, it's not. We live in a time and a place where this This is archaic. This is silly. This is irresponsible for modern culture. Right? So Paul tells Timothy, guard the deposit. Uh, There's always going to be the danger that the deposit is forsaken, that it's sold out, that it just isn't cool. He says, guard the deposit. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. He says, for by it some have swerved from the faith. And so, Timothy, grace be to you. Grace be to you. Listen, we are in a very unique battle, not against the world, but for the world. Right? They're not a battlefield, they're a mission field. We're for them, not against them. And so we have to wage the good warfare against Satan, against sin, against death, against covetousness, against deception, against division, with all our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for for your strong admonition to us. I thank you for the fact that we are called to something so much grander than ourselves. And I pray that you will keep us tender toward our world. My words, even the strong ones at the end, 
condemn the enemy. They don't condemn the world. We learn that from Ephesians, that the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Their eyes are blind. They do not understand. Um, He manipulates the world. We pray that we will bring hope, gospel, grace, opportunity, that we will seek to win a world that was lost. May we be your true warriors. We thank you and need you in your name. Amen.